Hi, I'm Tracy. I'm April. And And this this is Killer Spirits. to episode 16 16 this is us we're here welcome to us welcome to our domain looks like we've made it <laughs> we've semi made it yeah we made it and it's weird today because we are filming filming recording in the dark at 7 p.m i know it's so dark out we normally record at 11 a.m yeah ish ish, ish. yeah so it's kind of weird today it's like a creepy <laughs> nighttime version yeah for us, anyway, it doesn't feel any different for you guys. <laughs> They're like, we don't care. We don't get it. But yeah, it's kind of cool. We're making our cocktail in the darkness. Mm-hmm. Feeling a little dark today. And we got our toes done. So we're very relaxed. I know. It's kind of weird. We had some Starbucks debacles. Like, what's yeah, up, what Starbucks? I'm calling you out because we went to three different Starbucks before we found one that was open. Mm-hmm. I think one was inexplicably closed forever. Yeah, one was like permanently was shut gutted. down. Shut down. So I Which don't know. Which is weird because that one's always busy. I don't get it. So are you people not going to Starbucks in the in the COVID <laughs> times? I mean, maybe I'm, people are making more at home. I don't really go much anymore either. To I tell you the truth, may just start frequenting other places that are open. Yeah, but then we tried the other coffee shop that was also closed. I know. Okay, but we finally found one. <sighs> Because Tracy needed some coffee today. And then one of them, they just had a sign on their door that said, uh, due to staffing issues, we closed at one thirty. Yeah, I bet some of their staffing got sick. Oh and I, that makes me really sad, though. They probably have a lot of people who, I don't know, blah, blah, blah. Tell us. I guess with a million people filing for unemployment, I don't know why people uh, wouldn't be working in Starbucks. I don't know. I mean, maybe I'd, I'm stupid. I don't know. <laughs> Well, you're definitely not stupid, but we have a fun cocktail for you today, mm-hmm. and um, we actually hung out together yesterday and drank a lot. Yeah, baby! I, it, it wasn't even cocktails. It was... Two <laughs> bottles of wine. Actually, I think it was four bottles of wine, and it was two bottles oh, of It was four second. bottles of wine. It was three and a half, because Jason had a glass. Oh, that's right. Jason did have some, but the other uh, and two bottles three of and a half and two bottles of Prosecco was literally just you and me. However, I will say that did happen between 11 a.m. and 8 p.m. It's true. So cut us a little slack out yeah. there. Wasn't that and bad. And there was cheese involved. There was lots of cheese and lots of salami. Because I can really put together a mean charcuterie board. Charcuterie. <laughs> she can't actually it's one of her superpowers i know it's so stupid no what do you mean that is an excellent superpower to have mm. people have made money on like creating cookbooks on this stuff that's true yeah oh what did we decide eric asked us last night towards the end of the night mm-hmm. so you may not remember as clearly because <laughs> i only vaguely remember he asked if we won the lottery when we win the lottery what are we going to do with our time? I literally remember this not. At so, all? At all. We're going to start a food truck. Bre- oh, I think I vaguely remember We're going to call truck. it Breakfast Food is Our Favorite Food. And you didn't like that name. It's too long. You're like, that's a stupid <laughs> it's too- I don't like I st- it. I agree with myself. <laughs> but Breakfast Food Truck. And then you're like, can we have cocktails on the Breakfast Food Truck? And I was like, mm, kind of. Oh, yeah. Yeah. See, I'm still together even when I'm not fully together. Yeah. That is such a great Tracy question. So we're going to have coffees. Yeah. Pastries. Hey, breakfast cocktails are breakfast so burritos. fun. I love breakfast cocktails. Yeah. I mean, who doesn't love a good Bloody Mary? I mean, I do. So that's our future plan. All right. Get ready, guys. <laughs> Coming at you with a food truck. And then we'll also have a place to, uh, I guess we'll record our podcast in there. I don't know. Oh, wouldn't that be fun? We could be like a traveling podcast breakfast truck thing. We could do it. Oh my gosh, we're so full of great ideas when we're super lit. I've always wanted a food truck. <laughs> and we'll also sell ice cream because I feel like all food trucks should have ice cream. Oh yeah, the swirly kind. Yeah. I love it. Soft serve. Well, I'm excited for our cocktail today. It's mm-hmm. definitely different than what we've made before. It's delicious. And I want to hear your inspiration. Okay. And your 
making stuff. (laughs) So my inspiration originally is the story because these are called the chicken coop murders. Mm -hmm. So chicken coop is obviously eggs. Duh. There's chickens there. So I'm like, okay, well, I could do a sour with like egg whites. But I've also seen where people make something called a flip, which is with a full egg with the yolk. Which is crazy to me. Which is crazy to me, too. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've seen Steve the bartender do it. Oh, Steve. Hi, Steve. He does like a rum Hi. flip. <laughs> and it looked good when he made it. So I was it like, okay. Did. So then I started looking up um, like types of flips. So you can really do any sort of alcohol. So it'd be like a true spirit, like rum, brandy, whiskey. And then, like, a sweet spirit, like a cordial or something, sort Mm, of like mm -hmm. that. And then, which would be, like, the sugar part. And then an egg. It's, like, literally it. Really easy. Yeah. So, we made ours to be named after the Wineville location. Mm -hmm. It's called Wineville. Um, So, I wanted to use, like, a fortified wine. So, we have the Cajafa from a previous episode, which is cherry flavored fortified wine which is like the thickness of a port that's it's sweet um so we use that i'll just go through the recipe <laughs> do it so for one drink i made two but for one drink it's uh a quarter of an ounce of rum so i just use like an aged rum mm-hmm. um you could also use white rum i wouldn't use dark rum because it's got a whole different flavor profile yeah um it's like too rich right so a quarter of an ounce of rum, a quarter of an ounce of the Kirschwasser that we used in a previous episode. That's the Kirschwasser. That's a cherry-flavored brandy. It's so good. An ounce and a half of the Cajafa, which is the sweet and fortified cherry wine. Which also tastes good by itself. It does. We took a little shot today. And I read the back of it maybe a week ago. You can put it in soda, like a Coke. Oh, my so God. So it'd be like a cherry brilliant. Coke with a little bit of something. Okay. Well, I need to try that. Yeah. I love cherry Coke. Um, And then one egg. Just crack an egg in there. So first you take the egg, you crack it in, you put one cube of ice, and you shake it until the yolk is emul- the yolk. The yolk <laughs> is emulsified with the white. <clears throat> so it doesn't like separate. You don't want like an egg white snot. <laughs> I know. I know I hate that. It's weird. But this does not is not like that at all if you do it correctly. Yeah. So emulsify the egg, shake it hard, and then add all the other shit, fill it with ice. Then shake it again and then strain into a coupe glass and we garnished it with fresh grated nutmeg, mm. which really sends it home. It really does. And two cherries. And the color is kind of like this beautiful lavender color yeah. and it's all frothy on the top and it's it tastes really kind good. of like a milkshake a little bit. Yeah, kind of. Yeah. It's really good. And it's like really mild. So I think this is normally like an after dinner drink because mm-hmm. it's lower abv because of the fortified wine mm. it's not like a true liquor yeah um so this is something that you could drink a couple of after dinner and not be like a couple dang <laughs> yeah i mean really yeah the abv is pretty low yeah so it's not gonna get you too lit no. unless you have like five of them or something so don't do that but don't don't drink five of them because that's like five eggs i know that's a well, it's filling it i really could this just is be basically dinner. a protein shake <laughs> So, yes. I mean, if you're trying to get buff, this is the way you should go. Well, and I'm going to say, I we've really expanded our, you know, cocktail knowledge mm-hmm. and even the things that we've tried because I don't know if I've ever tried a cocktail with a full egg in it. Not that ever. I was aware of. No. No. So, it's been really fun to try it and, mm-hmm. you know, do some and this testings. day and age, if you're buying fresh eggs from the store, they're very safe. True. The FDA yeah, has a lot worry. of regulations on the eggs. Don't worry too much. Yeah. Well, if we die, we'll tell you. <laughs> yeah, if I get salmonella, we'll find out tomorrow. <laughs> we'll be fine. But I think we'll be fine. Yeah, it's really good. And if you and so that's the this is our Wineville flip. Wineville flip. And if you've never heard of Wineville, don't worry. I will tell you why you've never actually heard of Wineville. Ooh. <laughs> so yeah, it's really good. Thank you, April, for making this. Do you want to get started? Yeah, let's clink. Yes, clinky clink. <laughs> that was nice. That was so many clinks. That's a little tune clink, a little clink tune. 
Okay, so before we get started in this, though, I do want to give a little warning. Okay. Moving forward, because I think uh, anytime there's children involved, it's very difficult. Yes. Um, and anytime there's any kind of sexual assault involved, it's very difficult. Yes. Those two things sure. will be in this story. Okay. Um, children being hurt and sexually assaulted. So I just want to put that out there for everyone because uh, maybe you want to tune in for the cocktail and you want to tune back out. It's cool. I get it. I totally understand. This was a story that was on my list, and I've actually skipped over it multiple times because I wasn't sure I was ready to talk about this. Mm -hmm. um, but then I felt ready to talk about it. So, um, yeah, it kind of brings it home to me just because I have a little one around the same age. So I just want to put that out there for everyone so you know what's coming. It's not an easy story at all. So let's get started. And if you can't make it through it, we still love you. Oh, we totally love you. We'll have many other ones. Yeah, yeah. There might be other murders you're really into. <laughs> <laughs> it's cool. No judgment. Okay, so my sources, um, I used a couple of really good books. Actually, I think I just used three books on this. Oh, okay. Three different books. One is called Cold North Serial Killers, the Canadian Serial Murderers. And I've used that actually before in when we talked about the Butterbox Babies. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's a really good book. And then I also used a book called The Road Out of Hell, Sanford Clark and the True Story of the Wineville Murders by Anthony Flacco. Hmm. Excellent book. Okay. And also Nothing is Strange with You, The Life and Crimes of Gordon Stewart Northcott. Also an excellent book. And for some fucking reason, I didn't write down the author, but hmm. this is a two-parter. <laughs> Just so oh, you yeah, guys know, I forgot to tell too. you that. This is a two-parter. Even though you're going to see in the title part where I'm blah, blah, blah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But this is going to be a two-parter, so I'll make sure I'll circle back and tell you my sources again mm -hmm. because um, I think these are really good books. And I'm not going to talk about everything. And so if you really want to take a deep dive into this case, these two books really complement each other really mm -hmm. well, I think. The Road Out of Hell and Nothing is Strange with You. Okay, are you ready, April? Take a deep breath. I don't know. We're going to go back in the past. Okay. All right. On September 18th, 1866, Cyrus George Northcott was born in London to farmers Augustus and Caroline Northcott. 20 years later, he married Sarah Louise Carolthorpe, and she actually went by the name Louise, so that's what I will call her throughout this story. Information about Louise's childhood is pretty non-existent, just like her husband Cyrus, but she was allegedly born on August 26th, 1869, and she was the daughter of British parents. Her date of birth was also printed as August 26, 1867 in a newspaper later in her life. And once she provided 1868 as her birth year. So who the fuck knows? But also who the fuck cares? Yeah, true. We're not even going to give a shit. Um, so she married George in 1886 and possibly on August 12th. So because this is so long ago... There's not a ton of records on some yeah, of this Yeah, records stuff. are sketchy. Yeah, they're sketch wrecks. <laughs> sketch wrecks. <laughs> they're just sketch wrecks. So their first child was a daughter named Winifred, which I actually really love that name. And I think short Winnie, Winnie is just so That's very cute. cute. It reminds all, me of The Wonder Years. It does, doesn't it? Does anybody, everyone out there remember The Wonder Years? Such a great show. It was so cute. Okay, so in all, they had five children before having their last child, Stuart. But only two would survive infancy. Oh, their second child was named Willie, and he died of pneumonia at age six, which must have been terrible. And after this, Louise fell into a very severe depression yeah, and I was pretty much inconsolable. Yeah. Yeah. According to trial documents, their first child, Winifred, revealed that her parents' marriage was far from ideal and that George was, quote, a man of highly nervous temperament, of a violent, uncontrollable temper, and suffered from severe headaches. Okay. Yeah. She also said that he was an atheist while Louise was very religious. And apparently after five years of marriage, they had separated. But after Willie's death, they got back together. Huh. Yeah. Soon after Louise found out she was pregnant again, and she was so full of grief and rage that she did not want this baby. George told her that she must destroy this unborn baby. So that's what she tried to do. She tried violent jumping, which, okay, yeah, it's not going to happen. I mean, how, I'm just trying to envision violent jumping. Like, what does that mean? <laughs> Have you ever violently jumped? 
I mean, she could jump off of something. I, I guess that's true. She tried excessive horseback riding, and who knows what else she did, but nothing worked. At seven months pregnant, while George was drunk, he kicked her so hard in the stomach that she actually it actually injured her spine. Fuck. And honestly, who knows how true this account was. Even later in his life, when Stuart heard what his sister Winifred said, he actually said, quote, she's crazy. Um, but we'll go more into that later. But okay. yeah, so I mean, these are accounts that we've heard, but we can't verify a lot of this. Right. So we weren't there. It is what it is. Nobody was there. Yeah. So even with all that effort, Gordon Stewart Northcott was born in Bladworth, Saskatchewan on November 9th, 1906. Saskatchewan, bud. Saskatchewan, which is just a great name. It is. So at first, Louise refused to even look at him because, you know, she was full of grief and rage and all of that business. That just seems weird. It's, well, she, we're going to find out as we go along that she is off her rails. Okay. Completely. Not sure she was ever on the rails, but she's off. Okay. I'm not even sure she's a train that's supposed to be on the rails. <laughs> Maybe she's just not even that. Okay. Okay. So... She refused to look at him, but soon she became obsessed with him, and dare I say, unhealthily obsessed with him. As yeah, he she's a fucking freak. No, she. It was. It's very creepy their relationship. So reconstructing Gordon Stewart Northcott's childhood is also difficult because there are very few documents to look at. Plus, he was a pathological liar, as we'll find out. Hmm. So it's very unclear what's truth and what isn't. But we're going to give it a go. Are you ready? Yeah, I'm ready. (laughs) So apparently he loved music and literature, and he had an affinity for Beethoven and Shakespeare. He earned money as a musician at one point in his youth playing in a movie theater, a grocery store, and led a jazz orchestra at a Victoria Cafe. Oh, that's fancy. It's fancy. In 1918, at the age of 12, he contracted the Spanish flu during the flu epidemic. Mm. And although he was very ill, he did survive, obviously. That's why we're talking about him in this story. Yes. (laughs) So sometime before his 18th birthday, he slipped on a patch of ice and cracked his head pretty hard. So I find that really interesting because a lot of times when you look back at different serial killers... You can sometimes be like, hmm, there's that head injury. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, there's your head injury. Who knows if that was contributive to anything. If that is that a word, contributive? I don't um, know. You're the English major. I don't. Yeah, I know. I hardly read. I even being an English major, I don't know everything. <laughs> you didn't read the dictionary? I, from front to back. I know oh, everything. Yeah, yeah. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> Maybe it's a new one. So, yeah, he did have that head injury. In August 1924, when he was 18... The family left Canada and settled in California. That's a long way. It's a good move. Mm-hmm. It's not 100% clear why they did this. There are some reports that Stewart's doctor suggested a change of scenery after the ice incident. And also there's some reports that he was acting differently after that. But it's really hard to gauge because we don't know what he acted like before versus now. You know what I'm saying? I will say that head injuries can definitely affect your personality. They can, but I've what? S- literally seen it happen. But here, you cracked your head, you need to change of scenery and you're, go thousands of miles. Yeah, Who maybe knows? the doctor was just like, well, keep the boy away from ice. Yeah. And they were like, let's move to California. It's fucking hot there. <laughs> there there's no <laughs> ice there, I guess. <laughs> maybe. Yeah, so maybe work was more plentiful. I mean, it's unclear really yeah. why this happened. So George soon found work as a contractor and a builder, while Louise worked in the laundry of the Los Angeles County General Hospital, Hmm. which there was a soap opera about that one. General Hospital. Was that from Los Angeles, though? I feel like it was. No clue. So Stewart clerked part-time in a store, attended school, and sold automobiles. Okay. So, yeah, he was 18 at that point. He was Mm -hmm. an adult. So he was busy. He was busy. So a side note about Stuart. When he hit adolescence, he became extremely hairy. Like extra hairy, I guess. What the fuck? Like like from head to toe hairy. What a weird... Like covered in a blanket of hair. Part of the story. It's very weird. Like a wolf man hairy. Yeah. And the reason... The only reason I bring it up is because... Was it like a disorder? I, we don't know. Oh. Who knows? Maybe it was. Like was his dad hurt? I mean, his entire personality Did, is a disorder, but yeah. Does his mom have a mustache? No, I don't think so. It's very odd. Hmm. But his father would call him Ape Man, which, I mean, 
fabulous father alert. Yeah, that's terrible. And later, the media would also grab onto that name because, of course, they want to sensationalize everything. And that's really the reason I bring it up. Because when you look up reports on him, you will see like Ape Man or Ape Boy or things like that. So they tried to make him like a freak. They tried to make him like a freak because that's what you always want to do when someone is a a horrific person. Yeah. It's like, oh, it makes sense because he's a freak. He's like, an animal. Yeah. He's not a regular person. So right. that's that was kind of what the media he's was. He's not one of us. Exactly. So, uh, but apparently his entire body was covered in thick hair and he even had his uncle Ephraim, Ephraim, I think it's Ephraim, who was a physician, try to assist him in removing the hair, but nothing really worked. So, I mean, I don't know if he just had to like keep shaving all the time. I don't know. <laughs> Anyway, blah, blah, blah. This is not really that much a part of the story, but it was an interesting side note. I'm just imagining it, like hair on his forehead and everything. I don't know. When you see pictures of his face, you, there's no, it doesn't look Can't extra tell. hairy. I think it was mostly his body. His clothes were just sitting like two inches off of his actual skin because <laughs> his hair. Just all, He's just all puffy everywhere. I mean, there's nothing wrong with being hairy, I but know, I guess funny. he was like extra, extra. I don't know. Nowadays, maybe there's things that people can do for this. I'm not sure. Laser. But also an interesting side note about his uncle Ephraim. In 1919, when Ephraim was 49, he was a prominent physician in California and had just opened a maternity home. We were so familiar with maternity Fuckers. homes, aren't we? Yeah. Oh, that's, that's probably why they moved to California. They fucking loved maternity homes back then. Yeah. That could but he was this was already passed by the time they moved to California. Yeah. This was 1919, and they didn't move until 1924. Oh, I just mean maybe because he had an uncle there. That's why they moved there. Yeah, but he was gone by then, oh, is what I'm trying to say. Okay. So let me finish my story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he was gone. So he was a prominent physician, opened a maternity home on March 7th, 1919. An army nurse named Inez Elizabeth Reed asked him to perform a, an abortion on her. Mm-hmm. Okay. And he was like, sure, because he had this maternity home. And, and I mean, just remember, abortions were illegal back then. Right. Well, he botched it and Inez died. Fuck. So he fucking panicked and dumped her body in a ravine. Fuck. Because he's like, oh, I'm going to lose my license, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, I shouldn't fucked, have dude. been doing this illegal thing. Well, he was arrested shortly after. And on the 26th of June of that year, he was found guilty in San Mateo's Superior Court of second degree murder. And on the 5th of July, he was sentenced to San Quentin and basically stayed there till his death. Wow. So. So he fucked up. He fucked up. So, yeah, that's what I'm saying. By the time they moved to California, well, he was already in San Quentin. At least he wasn't the story of some of the other maternity homes. and They were left open for years and years and oh, years. There might have been. I don't know much about that maternity yeah. home. But anyway, it's interesting to keep seeing that stuff that used to happen. Yeah. So in four years, they moved four times after they came to California, possibly more, but finally settled on a house at 1239 Britannia Street. And this is also around the time that Stewart's proclivities, and by proclivities, I mean pedophilia, started to manifest. So there's no documentation that Stewart was acting on these urges Prior to moving to California, he could have. There's just no documentation of it. So who knows? I feel like he probably was, honestly, in my personal opinion. So while attending school in Los Angeles, Stewart became friends with a, a boy named Claude Scott, and he would frequently visit his house. On the 25th of July, 1925, the police, who were acting on a complaint from Claude's younger brother by the name of Philip Scott, and they called him Philly, which I think is so cute. That is cute. Um, they arrested Stewart on a statutory charge. Oh. The charge was either dropped, according to one paper, or Stewart was placed on probation, according to another paper, because, you know, can get their shit straight. Mm-hmm. But at the time, Philly was either nine or possibly 12, because each paper didn't know what they were talking about. But and still, he was, he was a baby. Yeah, he was a literal baby. So this is so crazy. Stuart kept a stool for years, for the few years after this, that Philly had made in a manual training class. And Stuart used it as a piano stool. He would sit on the stool and play Philly's favorite song at the piano. It's called Song of Songs. And then he would weep over his loss of Philly. 
It's disgusting. That's fucking weird. Yeah. Stewart also had a reputation as the, quote, chic of Pasadena Avenue. So this all comes out later. What? <laughs> yeah. The chic like a prince? Yeah. Due to his connection with multiple male sex workers. Oh. Yeah. <clears throat> but let's be real. These are probably underage underage kids. Probably. Underage kids are not sex workers. I just want to make that very clear. Yeah. They are abused and abandoned. Right. That's all I'm going to say. They're trafficked. They are trafficked. Yeah. That is not, and that was probably not a term they used back then, but <clears throat> it's not a thing. So in the spring of 1926, Stewart told his father to buy him some acreage so he could start a chicken ranch. Hey, dad, I want you to buy me some land. <laughs> it's so weird. He told his dad, oh, I saw some land I want, and I set up an appointment for you to see it, and I want you to go buy it. And George was like, sure, son, I'll do just that. He went out and bought him this la- this plot of land. Weird. Very, very weird. So apparently Stuart wanted to start a chicken ranch on this property, which was located near the little town of Wineville in Riverside County. Hmm. Okay, so we know where Riverside County is. <clears throat> if you are not from California and you're listening to this, Riverside County is near Los Angeles. L.A. L.A. It's near there. But Stuart could not handle the responsibilities of running this farm by himself, even a small one. I mean, running a farm is not easy. No. So he hatched another plan. And what the fuck does he know about chickens? Yeah, who knows? I mean, he's from Saskatchewan. I don't know if they had chickens there. They have a lot of snow and ice fishing. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that he didn't give a shit about chickens. He wanted an isolated area mm-hmm. to be a disgusting piece of garbage shit. Yeah. That's what I'm going to just just throwing that out there. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, again, he couldn't really run this thing by himself. So he hatched another plan. When Stuart was a baby, remember Winnie, Winifred, mm-hmm. his sister Winifred married a man named John Clark. They had a girl named Jessie who was born in 1909. And Sanford Wesley, who was born on the 1st of March, 1913. They also had two other children who came later, Kenneth and Edwin. (laughs) Okay. So he needed someone to help him. And what better person than a young boy who lives thousands of miles away? Wouldn't Wouldn't that be your first thought, April? Yeah. Yeah. And also this boy who barely knew him. Okay. His nephew. It makes no sense. So about three to four months after he got this farm, Stuart left to take the trip back to Canada. He drove up to Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, and spent about two weeks at his sister Winifred's house. So his sights immediately fell upon two of her four children who met his age and sex requirements, 11-year-old Kenneth and 13-year-old Sanford. Ultimately, he settled on Sanford. And he told his sister, hey, I'm taking Sanford with me. And she's like, okay, bro, bye. What? What the fuck? Okay, so Also, how much can an 11-year-old help you with a fucking farm? Well, he's 13, but really it's the same. No, I totally know what you're saying. No, exactly. Like, you couldn't even convince... Like, if I... If that was my kid, I'd be like, no, you're not. Also, what's wrong with you? Yeah. There's something wrong with you. Find an adult man to help you. Yeah. But there's... A lot of accounts of the relationship between Winifred and Stewart being really odd. Hmm. And Sanford himself said later that when <clears throat> Winifred and Stewart talked, it was almost like they flirted. And I think she was also very cold to her children. And I don't really feel like Sanford ever felt like she cared about him. Hmm. So he wasn't really surprised that she was like, okay, bye. He was 13. Yeah, that's Like, hard. what the fuck? So, Stuart takes Sanford back to Riverside County in California. And I think at first he was saying, oh, I'm going to take you to this, you know, place. I think it's called Regina in Canada. But then they never actually went there. He was like, never mind. We're just going to go back to California. Huh. But Sanford was a child and he was just like, well, okay. I mean, okay. whatever. Cool, I so, technically in 1926, Riverside County had only been in existence since 1893 as had the sheriff's department. So they're trying to maintain law and order, but this it's it's new. I mean, mm-hmm. it hasn't been around a long time. And young as the county was, it had already had its share of notorious crimes and dramatic incidents. On the 23rd of April, 1903, a barber named Frederick C. Fisher, acting, 
either with a desire to spare his wife suffering and temptations of a sinful world, as he said, mm. or to possess the money promised to her by the insurance company, which is more likely. Yeah. He gave her chloroform and strangled her. Holy shit. And then he doused her body with coal oil and set it on fire. So this is like Wild West shit. This is Wild West shit. So within a week, he had confessed and been condemned to death. And this happened right there in Riverside County. Yeah. But nothing could prepare this little town for a fucking Stuart, okay? And spoiler alert, there's no longer a Wineville. It's now called Miraloma. Oh. And you, yeah, I knew you'd know Miraloma when I said it. Yeah. And the reason for the name change in 1930 had everything to do with Stuart Northcott. Wow. Yeah, so they didn't want that name anymore. Because so he literally defamated the town. He, yeah, and the name. Hmm. Which, Wineville is such a fucking cool name. I would have loved that. I know. Miraloma. But it's fine. I believe Miraloma means over the hills, which I didn't know, but I think that's kind of nice. I think that's appropriate for that area. I think it is, too. So, anyway, that's why you will not actually hear of the town wineville well now we've brought the town name back with this drink the wineville flip it's the wineville flip <laughs> <laughs> so for about a week Stuart and sanford lived alone on this empty property they cleared away weeds they stayed in a tent on the property with Stuart sleeping on a cot and sanford on the ground what an asshole mm. then they began with george's assistant his father to build this ranch so first they built a house then a garage then they built two units in which to keep the chickens, mm -hmm. and the farm consisted of the main house, located about 39 feet from the main highway, the garage, located about 24 feet from the house, six chicken units, rabbit hutches, a goat house, a brooder house, a grain house, and, a, and hen runs. So the closest house not on the property, which pretty much stood vacant most of the time, was located directly to the south of this property, about 100 feet from Stewart's house. And a Robert H. Lauritsen lived an acre away on one side of Stewart's ranch, and a Mr. Robinson had two acres on the other side, and a Mrs. Simpson lived in back on another acre of land. Mm. But the only reason I'm telling you all of this is because I want you to just have a view in your head that they were literally in the boons. Yeah. You could scream... Probably, and no one could hear you. Right. Like, you'd have to scream, like, really loud. And even then, they probably wouldn't hear much. So, he would make Sanford get up at about 5.30 or 6 in the morning, water and feed the chickens, and then fix him breakfast. And only when Sanford told him that breakfast was ready would Stuart get his ass out of bed. So, Stuart wasn't running a chicken farm. He was running a slave farm. Yeah. Yeah. He His has enslaved was running. a 13-year-old. Yeah. Okay. Stewart did not participate in any of the chores because he had slave labor now. Like I said, he had a child. Mm -hmm. He would actually spend a lot of time away from the farm. Quote, um, unquote, being running, the chic. Yeah. Quote, unquote, running errands. <laughs> right? And you could probably imagine what part of his time was spent doing. Hunting and grooming. Boys. Yeah. Yeah. And it's unknown exactly what he was doing out there, but like I said, it definitely wasn't good. Mm -hmm. And we'll find out a little bit more later on what was happening. So Sanford was not allowed to socialize or talk to people, and he was not allowed to have friends or leave the farm. And lest we forget, Sanford was actually in the U.S. illegally. This is what's so crazy. So somehow when they were driving back, because they drove mm -hmm. from Saskatchewan, they get to the border... And Stewart is able to sweet talk the immigration officers at the Canadian border and told them that Sanford was born in the U.S. And they're like, okay, sure, goodbye, and let them through. Oh. What the fuck? Yeah. Like, I, I don't even get that. So Sanford would later say, quote, Stewart did not want me to go to school because he knew they would inquire where I was last to, at school and trace me back to Canada. Right. Yeah. So, but on two occasions, a Winefield teacher and this woman, she was like, um, excuse me, why are you not in school? Because a lot of times back then kids didn't go to school because everything was very rural. Mm -hmm. And so they did have teachers who would literally go out to the property and say, hey, we have a school. Why is the child not in school? Mm -hmm. You know, and there's a school for them. So on two occasions, this Wineville teacher came out to the ranch to inquire why Sanford did not attend the local school. 
And Stuart told her, oh, that's it's fine because he's attending a Catholic school in Los Angeles. So the following year, she came back because she like, he full of shit. <laughs> she came back and spoke with Sanford while Stuart was gone. Oh. Okay, so think about this. It's been a whole year from now. She came back. Stuart, Sanford's by himself. You would have thought possibly he would have said, help me. Yeah. I, but he, and I'm going to remind everyone that he was a literal child and he was so broken spiritually, mentally, and physically, I believe that he was so terrified that he did not say that. Right. So when Stuart came home, he, Sanford told him this teacher came out and he was pissed Mm -hmm. and he actually left that day. He left the farm and went to see her. And told them, just leave us alone. And then that night, he wrote her a letter and said that Sanford would be 16 years old in two days, which he was not. At that time, he was only 14. Mm -hmm. And that, quote, until eight months previously, he had been in school in Canada and was taught by the Jesuit fathers. Owing to ill health, he was advised by his physician to rest from his studies for a few months. And I guess that worked because that was that. That's weird. Like, I'm sorry. Did you not, owing to ill health, like, what's going on? I would want to know more about that. Yeah. But, you know, child welfare was not really a thing. Yeah, and people are kind of <laughs> like, well, I guess it's not our business. That was always how it was back then. It's just yeah. not our business. Guess what? It's your fucking business. If it's a kid, it's your business. Yeah. Okay, I'm just going to say that. Always. So, Stanford Sanford was with Stuart very briefly before he started sexually abusing him. And he would continue to rape him multiple times a week. And I'm not going to get in the huge details of this, but like I said, if you want to read um, the, those two books that I talked about, especially the San- the one about Sanford, mm-hmm. um, it will it will tell you all that you need to know. <laughs> okay, and it's not pretty. Um, he would actually make Sanford sign letters that Stuart had written to his family telling him what a great time he was having Mm -hmm. and how he was in school and he was learning so much and blah, blah, blah. And then he would like force him to sign these letters and send them home. He was holding him hostage. Right. Yeah. I mean, he was not allowed to speak with anyone. He was thousands of miles from home. He knew no one. He was completely isolated, cut off from everyone, and he was completely brutalized and his grandparents obviously didn't give a fuck oh yeah we'll find out about them too yeah yeah oh no they were just as disgusting as stewart so he was beaten with belts and clubs and whatever else stewart could get a hold of and he was continually raped by this sadistic bastard it was disgusting and in addition to all that brutality stewart was going to force him to participate in the murders that he eventually commits and he was in this hell for two years. Wow. Two fucking years this poor child was there. So <clears throat> just a little aside, which I thought this was really interesting. Supervisory Special Agent Kenneth Lanning of the FBI, who is now retired, had been assigned since 1981 to the Behavioral Science Unit at the FBI Academy in Quantico, Virginia, and he specialized in studying all aspects of the sexual victimization of children. He developed a typology for child molesters, dividing them into two categories, the situational offender and the preferential offender. The situational offender does not exclusively prefer children, but will, under certain widely varying circumstances, have sexual relations with them. Hmm. I hate that term have sexual relations with them it's i mean it's not really relations it's rape right but okay but that you get my point yes okay so the preferential offender on the other hand has an exclusive or nearly exclusive preference for children and will go through elaborate seduction rituals in order to win a child's trust a situational offender can very quickly quote identify a vulnerable and susceptible target Within a very short period of time, an offender can observe and or interact with children and identify his potential victim. With amazing precision, it is astonishing to see how quickly an offender works to identify his victim. Because that's what they live for. Yeah. It's literally what they live for. So this kind of a, this kind of offender sometimes, but not always, is a sadist. One who must subject his victim to psychological or physical pain in order to satisfy his 
sexual urges. His arousal is heightened by the victim's reaction to his subjecting the child to pain or suffering. This offender is likely to force or lure his victim into compliance, and of all offenders, this type is the one which is most likely to abduct or murder their child victims. And I think we can safely say that Stuart falls into the second category. Yes. He is a sexual sadist. Yes. As well as a pedophile. Mm -hmm. He is all of the above. So during the time that Sanford was at the ranch, Stuart would leave for long periods of time. And during these periods, he would be grooming victims and molesting scores of boys. He would admit later that he was part of a sex abuse ring and actually rented out his kidnapped victims for well-to-do clients. Okay, I say that, but again, there's no evidence of this, Mm -hmm. but it wouldn't surprise me. But who knows? On the 1st of February, 1928, Stewart told Sanford that he was going into Los Angeles, but he did not say why. Around noon, Stewart drove his Buick Roadster back into the farmyard and told Sanford, Oh, darn, I just killed this Mexican man. What? Uh, Exactly. What? So Sanford was like, what? I don't really believe you. Stewart took a black tar pail out of the back of his car and showed Sanford what was inside. And it was the blood-soaked head of a man with long black hair. So you just said the head? Just the head. Okay. Yes. So he built a bonfire in this drained duck pond behind the garage and he burned the head along with a bundle of black clothes that this victim was wearing. He didn't tell Sanford the victim's name or any details about the killing except that he had shot the man because he, quote, knew too much. Okay. Yeah. He told Sanford he left the headless body by the side of the road near Puente because he had no place else to put it. I mean, where are you supposed to put a headless body? Do you know, April? I mean, he could have burned it in the fire where he burned the head. That's too hard. It's too hard Why would you cut off somebody's head just to take the head? I don't know. This is why he's so so crazy. Yeah. And so Sanford, he's later testifying that this head burned all that afternoon until darkness fell, by which time, quote, all but a chunk of it had been consumed. The remaining piece was placed in a bucket and broken up with an axe and then was placed in sacks along with the ashes. And then Stuart dumped that in the in a dump yard near Norco, where he normally dumped his garbage. So he just dumped it out in this garbage dump. Okay. Yeah. So about 45 minutes later, he came back and told Sanford, okay, now we're going to go visit my parents in Los Angeles. And he made Sanford practice a cover story all the way there that they, that they had hired this man to do work around the ranch. And he had to steal that he caught him stealing from them. And he had to murder him in self-defense. Okay. Why do you need to come up with any story? Just don't say anything. Yeah. Your parents aren't going to ask, hey, did you happen to burn a Mexican guy's head? Not if they already know. Today? Not if they already know about it. Which they possibly might. Oh. They might. So it's really weird. This is a really weird story because part of Stewart's story included the detail that he had fed the man tapioca pudding before all this went down like okay he came to my house i gave him some pudding then i caught him stealing and he tried to hit me and i shot him okay that's all this is his whole thing okay why pudding well i don't know but let me keep talking (laughs) and i will tell you so bizarre it is very this is such a weird story and this is why it's two parts because i couldn't even fit all this shit in one episode it's too crazy people Mm -hmm. it's too crazy so on February 2nd, which is the day after this, a farmer named Lom Compton was driving south along Hudson Road near Puente, about 1,400 feet south of the Valley Boulevard, when his dog, which was running alongside the front of his car, began to bark, and he noticed an arm sticking up out of the weeds on in a roadside ditch. That's such a country thing. I know. My dog's, running. Dog. <laughs> My dog's running along the We're side. exercising him. That's when the, there is like no traffic yeah. anywhere. There's nothing. I mean, the fact that you can even dump a body with no one seeing it, right? Yeah. So the body was covered by a sack from its shoulders down, and he could see that it did not have a head because it was pretty obvious. Mm. So he drove to the fire station in Puente and asked them to contact the sheriff, which they did. And about 9.30 p.m., the Los Angeles deputy sheriff, by the name of William J. Bright, deputy sheriff Dave Cruchorn, 
Los Angeles Deputy District Attorney Tom Menzies, which is funny. I don't know many district attorneys who go straight up to the crime scene, but maybe. Yeah. Um, and other, uh, like between one and four additional men went out to the scene. So they examined the body and they saw two wounds, the cut that had severed the neck. Apparently, the deputy sheriff Bright said that it was a clean cut, but then the other deputy said that it was a jagged cut. Who knows? But they also saw a bullet hole surrounded by a large powder burn just below the right nipple. So and, it was like close. Yeah. And it looked like the head had been cut off with a knife or an axe. So the body, which appeared to be that of a Mexican male between 16 and 18. So I'm sorry, this is not a man. No. This is a child. Yeah. He killed a child. Okay. So it bothers me that he'd be like, I killed a man. No, you did not kill a man. No. You killed a, you killed a baby child. Okay. So he was nude and bore no identifying marks except those left by a bathing suit that he had worn recently, I guess. So whoever had dumped the body also left bloody fingerprints on his right arm. But the marks were so smeared they couldn't get any fingerprints off of it. Oh. So uh, the the boy's hands were soft without calluses. So this really kind of showed that he did not do hard labor. Right. He wasn't a hard laborer. Out. He wasn't like a farm kid. No, he wasn't. So the body was taken to the mortuary, and the next day an autopsy was performed by Dr. Frank R. Webb, which sounds like such a uh, like a mortician's name. Frank R. Webb. I am Frank R. Webb, doctor. Okay. Anyway, I digress. <laughs> <laughs> he actually found the body to be a Mexican boy of about 18 or possibly 16. He was five feet, six inches tall, estimated weight about 140 pounds. Um, his hair was dark brown, almost black, and further examination showed a gunshot wound entering the front right chest at a 0.8 and one half inches right below the shoulder and three and one half inches to the right of the median line, which is like your middle. Mm -hmm. So the course that this, that it took was to the left backward and slightly upward and it had passed through the right lung, the middle and lower lobes of the right lung. Okay. So basically he was shot. And it also passed through um, his sixth and seventh vertebrae and passed behind the heart. Okay. All right. So there was no indication there was sexual assault. And the identity of this boy is never found, which is very frustrating to me. As far as anyone could tell, this probably was Stuart's first murder. Possibly. But Why? Because it, this is never clear, and it never will be clear, because there was no sexual assault, which is kind of his M.O., as we'll see later. Mm -hmm. um, but the autopsy did find that there was tapioca in his stomach, which is exactly like Stuart said. So was this self-defense, like he said? I mean, was he not lying? Did he take this boy to his parents' house and give him pudding and then kill him? Because as we'll see later, his parents were really complicit in a lot of things, especially his mother. So this very well could have happened. Hmm. Did he proposition this boy and the boy was like, oh, fuck no. I'm and then he shot you. him. I mean, we, we actually don't really know what happened. But this is pretty much when the murder started. Well, he did say he knew too much. He knew too much. So what does that mean? Yeah, we don't know. Hmm. So, um... We won't, and we'll never know, but about a month after this, another boy would end up dead at his ranch. Fuck. Yeah. That was me dropping my paper. <laughs> I'm like, just get this paper out of here. I'm just disgusted. <laughs> All right. So, Stewart had worked in the vegetable section at Ralph's Lincoln Park store on Pasadena Avenue between early August and mid-October of 1925. So remember when he and his parents first moved here and he worked at the grocery store mm -hmm. and did all this bullshit. Yeah. Okay. So back when he worked there, he met Walter Collins, who was one of his regular customers. Walter Collins was a seven-year-old boy from the neighborhood. He ran errands with his mother. Okay. So this is nearly two and a half years later. Okay. Because we're in, you know, 1926. Where are we? What year are we in? Oh, yeah. No, we're in 1927. Okay. <laughs> Actually, we're in 1928. Help me. Three years. I need more of my cocktail. Oh, my gosh. Okay. What's happening? So okay. the kid is now 10? Uh, well, he's nine. Yeah. So not quite 10. Okay. 
So on the 10th of March, 1928, nine-year-old Walter Collins would disappear from the front of his home at 217 North Avenue, 23. His mom, Christine, worked for the Southern California Telephone Company. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. But, and his father was ter- serving time in Folsom Prison. I'm not sure why, but he only had his mom during that time. Okay. When he disappeared, he was wearing a brown and red and black lumber jacket and brown corduroy trousers, black Oxfords, and a gray cap. Which I can just envision this in my so mind. Cute. He sounded so cute. But she did not report Walter as missing until the 15th of March, and I don't really know why she that would have taken so long. He's nine. Yeah. That's a little bonkers to me, but okay. So she reports him missing, and they start a search. Of course, little Walter was abducted by Stuart, mm-hmm. who took him back to the ranch and kept him in the hen house located next to the feed shed. He was kept there for about a week while Stuart raped him Mm -hmm. and beat him and Stuart had actually been gone from the ranch for about a week before he returned with Walter and his mother Louise was there minding the farm in his absence and Sanford would later testify that it was Louise who actually decided that little Walter needed to die Okay, so she was fully aware of what her disgusting sack of a son was doing, Mm -hmm. and she was fully complicit. That's sick. It is beyond disgusting. She told Stuart and Sanford, quote, each of us will strike a blow, and then if we are ever found out, we will all be equally guilty. Great. Yeah. So Walter was killed while in the hen house and received multiple axe blows to the head, and I just want to take a moment to recognize here that, yes, Sanford did give some of those blows, but he was a victim. Yeah. And you cannot tell me that Louise, and probably George, because, I mean, whatever, dude, was not fully aware of what was happening to him out there. I mean, if Louise was out there spending time with this child, how could she not see that? And we'll find out later. He was... Very, very skinny for his age, and he had bruises all over him. He didn't even have clothes that fit well. And she just was like, oh, yeah, it's fine. Blah, blah, blah. No, she is a literal monster. Yeah. Just like her son. So the fact that Sanford was forced to take part in this murder is so incredibly tragic. And when you see pictures of Sanford, when he finally was able to leave this ranch when he was like 15. Mm-hmm. He weighed 98 pounds. Holy shit. He was so tiny. Like, I didn't, I was like, wow, how old is that child? Like six? No. He was 15 and he looked so tiny. It was very, very sad. like malnourishment. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, abuse. Yeah. So they buried Walter's body in the hen house. And after a week, Stuart went and opened up the grave and then poured quicklime over him. So this is what he's using the hen house for. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So only two months later, on May 6th, 1928, so yeah, we were in 1928, I don't know what the fuck I was on. <laughs> I'm like, what year am I in? I don't even know what day I'm in in real life, okay, people? <laughs> Sunday. But yeah, that was 1928. Um, so on May 16th, 1928, at approximately 6.30 p.m., 12-year-old Lewis Winslow and his 10-year-old brother Nelson asked their mother if they could go to the Model Yacht Club, which was an organization that they belonged to. Their mother did not really want them to go out that night because she wasn't feeling well, but she finally relented because I could totally hear these 12-year-old, this 12-year-old and 10-year-old like, come on, mom, please. please. Can we just go to club one time? And so she relented and told them, fine, but come back in an hour. So they left their home in Pomona and walked the six or seven blocks to the yacht club. And Lewis took a book with him, The Boy's Airplane Book by Frederick A. Collins, that he had checked out from the Pomona Public Library two days before. So he was a little reader, which I think is cute. Mm -hmm. So the Model Yacht Club actually sounds like a really awesome place. It was a place where kids of any age could go and make, sell uh, models, mainly of yachts and airplanes. So they could go and build things. I loved models when I was a kid. Yeah, I think that's so cool. So when they got there, Lewis worked on a propeller, and Nelson worked on a small ukulele. Which I love that word, ukulele. It built from a mahogany cigar box, a red one arm, and two strings. 
And they lost track of time, as kids do, because mm-hmm. they're all up in their projects. And they didn't start home until 8.25. So that was the last time anyone saw them leave the yacht club. They knew that they left at 8.25. Yeah. And they were carrying the library book and the homemade ukulele. About 10 p.m. that night, Stuart would return to the ranch with both boys. And where do you think he put them? In the disgusting hen house. Mm -hmm. And he would keep them captive there for over a week. During their captivity, in which he raped and brutalized them, he also had them write a letter to their family. One was postmarked at Pomona, Pomona, yeah, Pomona, on nineteenth, uh, on the nineteenth of May, and it read, quote, "Dear Mother and Dad, we are going to Mexico to make a lot of money making yachts and airplanes. A woman gave us something to eat. Don't worry, we will be okay. Louis and Nels." Their mom's not buying that shit. You are fucking 12 and 10. Are you serious? You're not going to Mexico. Like, I'm literally imagining my children in my mind right now. Like, we're going to Mexico. Like, you a went. A lady gave me a cracker. You went to the yacht club for an hour. What Just is happening? from here. Like, this is, like, why would you even think that that is a thing? Mm-mm. The second letter was postmarked at Corona on the 28th of May. And this was actually after Stuart had already murdered them. And it said, Dear Mother and Dad, we are well and having a wonderful adventure. Our only trouble is getting something to eat. We travel at night and sleep in barns during the day. Is our names in the paper yet? If we can get far enough away and stay hid enough, we will be as famous as Lindbergh. Please do not show anyone this letter. Do not worry. We will be all right. Love from Louie and Nelson Wilson. I mean, I'm sorry. Nelson Winslow. Hmm. You're 10 and 12. I'm just going to keep saying again. Yeah. You're literally babies. I mean, Stuart is such a fucking idiot. So on the 20, on Saturday, the 26th of May, Stuart decided he was finished with the boys. I feel like a week was like his thing. Like, yeah, I'm done with you after a week. It's time to move on. Yeah. So he actually attempted to kill the oldest one, Lewis, with ether. So I think he was using ether um on the other boy too like he would use it to kind of anesthetize them because that's what it does and so i think it made them you know compliant but he thought oh i have such a great idea i'm going to kill him with this ether okay so he actually had him lay on a cot and then he took a colander cut off its handle put it over lewis's face covered it with a cloth and poured most of the contents of a nearly full can of ether through it so Drown him. So he thought, yeah, you're just, I'm going to like give you all this ether and you're just going to overdose and die. Right. Well, Lewis was unconscious for about a minute or two, but then he woke up and started vomiting. Right. So that did not work. So Stuart was like, oh, darn, that didn't work. So I'm just going to have to murder you both with my axe. Okay. So that's what he did. And both boys were like most likely placed in their grave in the hen house. While they were still alive. Oh. Okay. Sanford would testify later. Oh my God, I hate this. That he could hear them both groaning while they put dirt over them. Poor Sanford. I, yeah, poor Sanford is right. It's horrific. Yeah, so he killed those boys. And then they took the homemade ukulele and the library book and they burned them. Right. And the murders of Lewis and Nelson Winslow are the last known killings actually that can be pinned on him. So even though that's the case, um, it, it's believed that he possibly killed up to 20 people. Okay. But these are the only ones that they really knew about. Okay. okay. Um, is that just because it's all that Sanford testified Yeah, a lot to? of this is Sanford's eyewitness testimony and a lot of it is just what there was evidence for. Gotcha. And I, I mean, I kind of feel like he possibly could have been out there like killing people he's gone for weeks at a time he was definitely out there molesting people and there were times that he would take boys and then let them go oh so it just he was but he was escalating as you can see it was terrible but after these murders and this is how you know his mom is a fucking trash ball as trashy as you can get he actually made a plan to murder a jacob and ella doll to get access to their four young sons who were 8, 12, 14, and 15, okay? 
So with the help of his mother, fucking Louise, Stuart posed as the personal secretary. So this is so like, okay, when I, after I tell this story, you're going to be like, this was so well thought out. Like, obviously he was not doing chores at the farm people because he had so much time to think out all these weird ways to get access to kids. Okay. He posed as a personal secretary of the fabulously wealthy Mrs. Rowan, which was his mother. Mm-hmm. And he went to the Salvation Army in L.A. asking for a laborer or cook for one of his, you know, rich, wealthy Mrs. Rowan's multiple ranches. Okay. So he basically went out there and was like, hey, I need to hire someone. OK, so Louise was posing as Stewart's aunt. And Sanford was to be her son. San- as, so she goes out there like, hi, I'm, you know, Mrs. Rowan. And then they suck Sanford into this weird of course. thing. Okay. He always gets sucked in. Yeah. So Stuart introduced himself to Mr. and Mrs. Dahl as Mr. Craig. So obviously he's not using his real name. And the story behind Jacob and Jacob and Ella is that they had lost their jobs. You know, it was there was really hard times. So Mr. Dahl went to the Salvation Army trying to get a job. And while uh, Stuart was in there, he asked about it. And the woman at the counter was like, hey, yeah, he's looking for a job. Oh, so that's how they got connected. That's how they got connected. Okay, so he drove them, Mr. and Mrs. Dahl, he drove them out to the ranch and served them a light supper, including peaches that seemed to have some sort of weird capsules sprinkled over them. But Mrs. Dahl found this kind of strange, mm-hmm. but, and she also felt that the, they were acting kind of weird and nervous, but she didn't say anything because she really wanted her husband to have a job. They were probably weird as fuck. They were probably so awkward and weird. Yeah. So at the end of the evening, Stuart returned the dolls to their home. And then shortly after he informed them that Mrs. Rowan, Rowan's husband had died and the cook was no longer needed. But. What happened was Sanford later testified that Stuart completely scrapped this plan to murder them because he was afraid of getting caught. So he got he started having cold feet about this. Oh. Yeah. But can you even believe that you were going to murder two people to get access to their four children? So weird. It is so fucking weird. So I'm going to stop there <laughs> for part one. <laughs> There's so much more. And next time we're going to talk about how Sanford gets away, which is a really good story. Okay. And how Stuart gets caught. Which probably is even a better story. Yeah. So it was all kind of intertwined. And um, yeah, and I, I hate to leave you all hanging on that, but you're hanging. Yeah, we'll see you next week. <laughs> So hopefully you tune in next week and hear part two. But yeah, isn't that story wild? That's so bizarre. It's so wild. And I actually had never even heard of this story. Never even heard of it. And I I, I guess I'm thinking of like what just with the weird f- sexual family stuff. Yeah. Like seeming flirty with his sister Yeah, and I'm going to go in a little bit deeper in the next episode about these family dynamics and some of the And, like, his mom being like, let's murder kids. Yeah, and the fact that his mom would just be so complicit. It's like she knew exactly what he was doing, and she was helping him cover it up. Yeah. Anything for my little boy. I mean, it is so hard to fathom. It's weird. That I don't even get it. The tapioca pudding really threw me, like, sent me. I don't understand that. I don't understand it either. And so that's why when he's talking about the story of the tapioca pudding, I I don't know. I just feel because there's a theory that he took that boy to his parents' house and they knew about this. Hmm. And it's, it is very mysterious. And I wish I had more information about it. I just don't. I look, trust me. <laughs> I tried. <laughs> I wish that he was still alive so we could beat it out of him. Oh, my gosh. I know. Yeah. Well, it's we'll, too late for that. You will hear everything that happens to him <sighs> next week. Next week. And do you want to do a second drink next week? That's up to you. Are you in a second drink mood? Sure, we could do it. Yeah. Is it going to be another egg one or are you doing something different? No, I won't do another egg one. <laughs> no eggs. We'll do something else. All right, we'll do something else. Maybe something with wine. 
Okay. Wineville. I don't know. Stay tuned. We'll figure it out. We'll marinate. <laughs> <laughs> All right, everybody. Have a good week. Wait, you got to tell oh. them where to find us. You can find us. If you want to send us an email. Yeah. Talk about any like spirits you want us to use or drinks you want us to make or stories you want to hear. You can email us at killerspiritspod at gmail.com. We're on Twitter at Killer Spirits, on Instagram at Killer Spirits Pod, and you can join us on Patreon where we have um, videos of our cocktail making at patreon.com backslash Killer Spirits, and we're also on TikTok at Killer Spirits Pod. Yeah, and we always post pictures of our drinks. On our Instagrams. Uh, yeah, on the Instagram, and we also post pictures of the episodes. Yes, so. and to all of our new Instagram followers, thanks for following us. Yay, we love you. That's cool. We'll see you next week. All right. Bye. Bye.